Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Scott G. Bruce, editor of the new book, The Penguin Book of Dragons. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about the book, The Penguin Book of Dragons, can you describe what the book entails? Absolutely. It's a historical anthology of stories about dragons stretching from the most ancient literature um, to uh, the late 19th century. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to edit the Penguin Book of Dragons? Uh, I've been interested in dragons for a long time, as long as I can remember. Um, I spent uh, had some wonderful childhood memories of watching Ray Harryhausen's uh, wonderful special effects in uh, movies in the 1960s, which I saw on television as a child in the 70s. And I was an avid reader of fantasy literature and, and an avid player of Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. Uh, so dragons have been on my mind for a long time. Um, but I, uh, I became a medieval historian and um, uh, probably not coincidentally. And, uh, and dragons continue to play a role in the life of the people I study. And so uh, when I had the opportunity to compile a, um, a source book, as it were, for dragons in history, um, I, I leapt at it. Well, when you sat down to edit the book, was there a particular, excuse me, was there a particular organization um, or outline that, that you put together of the type of stories that you were looking for? Well, I, I was open to almost any kind of story. Um, now, mind you, I, I wanted longer stories, I think, because they're more interesting for people than, than rather these short anecdotes. So very brief mentions of dragons in the chronicle tradition, you know, brief sightings that don't really describe the dragon or say much about it. I was less interested in those than in, than in more expansive and detailed stories. Um, the framework of the book was in some ways predetermined by other books I had done for Penguin along this lines, the Penguin Book of the Undead and the Penguin Book of Hell. Um, one on, obviously, the, um, the returning dead, whether ghosts or revenants, and the other one about the punitive afterlife. And these two had a similar kind of span of time. Um, but I was, I was particularly interested in showing the variety of literary traditions about dragons. So I wanted to, I wanted to find, um, very ancient accounts, not just from Greece and Rome, but from, uh, ancient Asia. And, um, I wanted to have a global approach. Um, so, uh, not just European dragons, but dragons, um, from Greece, from the Middle East, uh, from the Indian subcontinent, from Japan, um, and even from America. Um, and I wanted to stretch as far as I possibly could. And for me, that was right up until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, some of the dragon stories that we have in, in the 20th century and early 21st century, of course, are quite commonplace and easy to find. Um, and so they, those did not get included. Sure. And how did you, uh, do the research, especially in the, these areas, these global areas that, that, some people may not associate with dragons. Oh, um, so in part it was, um, so as a, his, I'm a historian by profession. And so mm -hmm. I, I described that as I spent a lot of time reading dead people's mail. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, my day job is literally hunting down old texts. Um, and so for the medieval period that, you know, I was already familiar with many of these sources and they were, you know, they were at my fingertips. Um, for, um, material outside of medieval Europe, um, I really had to lean on specialists. Uh, some of these texts had been translated before by other scholars, um, who were proficient in the languages, um, that, that they were written in, which I cannot read, uh, like 
Sanskrit or some of the Asian languages. Um, in some cases, in the case of Japan and China, I reached out to scholars that I knew and respected who studied those traditions uh, and and just said that, you know, this is the goal of my book. And I'm, and I'm really interested in including, you know, more stories from your area of specialty. And can you can you direct me to them? And many of them did. And many of them had already translated some of these stories. So so that worked out very nicely. And then and then. Um, uh yeah, so so the 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 collection came together uh, quite nicely, and um, the um, and each of the chapters ended up being um, quite robust, which I was really pleased. with. And how long how long did that editing process take for you of of searching down and and getting translations of these global stories about dragons? Uh, I would say from from inception until publication, a book like this takes about um, two to three years. Um, the first, the first year really being the kind of collecting stage where you're hammering out all the different stories at their place. It's, you know, it's kind of, if you equated it with a, a movie, you would say that's the casting stage. <laughs> you're trying to find <laughs> the stories that will play the roles you want them to play within the book. Um, for many of these stories, I mean, one of the things that's time consuming is, is writing the introductions, uh, doing the research so that you can write the introductions to these, um, to these various, um, excerpts and, uh, and stories. Um, I also farmed out many of the stories to um, uh, to specialists. So um, uh, Professor Paul Acker did translated the Anglo-Saxon stories uh, and did a new translation of Beowulf for us, the relevant parts of Beowulf. Um, Professor Anthony Caldellis did an entire chapter with me on um, uh, Byzantine Greek stories um, because he's a specialist in that field. And so, um, so, so there was the kind of you know the farming out of the material as well, and then. And then uh, many of the stories were um, from the medieval Latin were translated by me and uh, some of my students. Um, and so that that is particularly time consuming, but also incredibly rewarding, especially for them. Um, and uh, and then others, uh, some of the 19th and you know 18th, 17th century sources that, that are in English, those just had to be transcribed from the original works. And so were there particular dragon stories that you discovered while researching the book that surprised you? Um, yes, there are some very strange ones. <laughs> I think that we're all used to, um, you know, we in in uh, in modern fantasy literature, we're used to two very broad categories of dragons, and one is the kind of um, uh, I'll just call it the big bad dragon, I guess. Um, you know, the dragon as adversary, uh, which has deep roots in the pre-modern tradition, and the other is dragon as ally. Um, which has almost no precedent in the pre-modern tr tradition. It's very much a modern conceit that dragons would somehow somehow be allies of human beings. Um, so when I found stories of dragons being allies, uh, mainly in the Asian tradition, those were surprisingly pleasant. Um, there are other very strange bits of lore about dragons that you'll learn about in this book that that took me completely by surprise. Um, one is a uh, one is a story written by a 12th century Christian author who was. Um, really, his interest was in describing why Christians celebrate certain feast days for saints. And in a digression of one of those stories, um, he he tried to explain the origin of the um, the habit of people creating bonfires in the month of June. And so, when you when you or I talk about a bonfire, we think about a fire with wood that we burn outside, perhaps on a you know cool evening to roast marshmallows or whatever. And um, but for them. Uh, for 12th century people, a bonfire was in fact a bone fire. It was a fire that was made by burning the bones of cattle. 
And the reason they did so was to ward off dragons, which were particularly active in the month of June, apparently. And um, because dragons during that month, according to medieval lore, were were um, in heat, as it were, and they would fly around and the male dragons would um, uh, would would basically fly around and ejaculate all over the place. And <laughs> that would um, that was bad for livestock. It was bad for crops and it was bad for for water systems. And uh, so. It, but but they would be warded off if you lit bonefires and um and that that tradition lived on in medieval Europe and somehow bonefire became bonfire <laughs> in our in our reckoning um but the uh but that was so that was not I was not expecting to read um uh you know a kind of prophylactic stories about <laughs> protecting <laughs> ourselves from <laughs> from the excesses of dragons in that regard <laughs> um there were um there is a, a yeah there there are there are many surprises <laughs> in the tradition um and and those surprises were always pleasant because um because you know dragons are uh, they they they're a strong presence in our tradition i would in our literary traditions i would say they are probably the most popular mythological creature in the in the human imagination and so the stories can get a little old <laughs> um and the uh, and so to find ones that break the mold, as it were, where it's not just a, a hero fighting a dragon to rescue somebody, um, those were always very fun. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For ninety dollars more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For hundred and thirty more, you'll be a Swole member, and for just three hundred dollars more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Do you have a favorite story in the book? I may have just given it away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, there are many. Um, the... Um, I mean, I am very, very fond of the Beowulf story because it was one that I encountered when I was in college. And it was one, it was a moment where, you know, I was, I was leaving childhood and entering adulthood. And I, I was worried, I think subconsciously that I was going to leave behind many of the things I enjoyed. And then suddenly I'm reading this central piece of medieval literature to find an old friend, <laughs> you know, a dragon that was very familiar to me from The Hobbit. Um, because of course, Tolkien was a, was a, a specialist in the old English language and literature. And, based smog on the uh, dragon of, um, uh, of the Beowulf poem. Um, and so that was a wonderful moment for me. <laughs> um, I will say that um, one of the stranger characters in the book is a, is a, is a Jesuit named Athanasius Kircher, and he wrote in the uh, 17th century. And he, he, he was obsessed with the idea of subterranean worlds, of worlds that existed underground. He was like, you know, Jules Verne would have loved this guy. So obsessed was Kirchner that he had himself lowered into active volcanoes so he could hear the sounds and look around. Um, it's amazing this guy lived to be any old age. Um, but he compiled um, a massive two-volume work called Mundus Subterranus, so the subterranean world, uh, writ which he wrote in Latin, where he detailed, well, he gathered every bit of information he could from the ancient and medieval period about the characteristics of this underground world that he imagined, including wonderful, he had wonderful pictures made of it too. Um, and there's a whole subsection of this book that is about what I would call subterranean megafauna, <laughs> the kinds of large creatures that live underground. Uh, and, and, and the underground world for him was pocketed by all sorts of 
crazy plants and gems and but also giants and um strange creatures including dragons he has a long section on dragons and how dragons live underground and he collected many different sources um not only ancient ones but contemporary ones to him so he was he was absolutely one of my favorite people to work with um if only because he was just so obsessive and so fascinated by this world that he could not quite yet see. Um, and that's a motif in stories about dragons. They always, very few people say there's a dragon down the street. You know, they, they write about the dragon that is just beyond view, whether it is underground, in the ocean, in the mountains, in a distant land. Um, and in a sense, we could almost chart the kind of uh, boundaries of, human perception through history by looking at where the dragons are placed in these stories uh for the ancient romans dragons almost always lived in africa and india um because those were you know the limits of roman control the limits of roman civilization where that, that's where the boundaries were um medieval europeans also tended to put them at the borders of their countries um and one of the surprising, one of the delights of this collection was um, uh, finding accounts in late 19th century American newspapers of encounters with dragons in the deserts of the American Southwest and in the forests of California. <laughs> Again, in the late 19th century, the very limits of American expansion. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but but just to see that they they literally were everywhere, and um, I'm afraid now with Google Maps and whatnot, we we've banished them completely <laughs> from from our planet. Um, uh, you know, dragons in space, I presume, is the next thing we're going to find. But the um, which would be very cool too. Um, but uh, so yes, those, those I, I will as as the last as the follow up to your last question, I would say those those dragon stories from American newspapers were also pretty special. That's great. Well, are you working on editing another penguin book now? Mm -hmm. So this is my third <laughs> in, in a few years. Um, it was a wonderful project, which I did with the help of my editor of penguin, uh, John Siciliano. Um, and, um, I, and three seems like a good number to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would jump at the opportunity to do another one. Um, uh, but for me, I think, uh, now my, you know, other, other academic, uh, inquiry beckons. <laughs> so, um, there are other books on the go now. Sure. <laughs> well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, oh, how wonderful. What a lovely question. So um, I'm right now reading, um, uh, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm reading um, Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea to my 10-year-old um, right now. And um, I will say that, uh, you know, all respect to J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series and its great cultural uh, impact on but oh my goodness, I can't recommend more Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea for the story of a young wizard coming of age and an imaginary world where magic actually kind of makes sense and has a real purpose. Um, and the prose is so crisp and wonderful. She's such a great writer. Um, and there's also a fantastic dragon <laughs> uh, that the young wizard has to face. And um, he does so in very unconventional ways. Um, so that's, that's kind of one of my leisure reads right now. Um, I'm very fortunate at Fordham where I teach that, um, I've been allowed to teach a, a class to undergraduates called, um, uh, monsters, magic, and the undead in, um, medieval Europe. And, um, for each of those sections on monsters, magic, and the undead, we have a kind of capstone, uh, where they read a major primary source from the medieval period about one of those topics, but alongside a modern novel. Um, so that we can compare the way certain modern people have um, thought about <laughs> the topic um, 
compared to medieval people. And so for the um, uh, unit on magic, I have them read Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea, which many of them have never heard of, never encountered. And that's that's always a wonderful thing for me to do. Um, in terms of nonfiction, uh, I've been reading, uh, um, very slowly been reading uh, Blight's uh, biography of Frederick Douglass. Um, which is, uh, you know, expansive and granular in its detail and absolutely wonderful. And for a medieval historian, it's very riveting since I, I can't imagine knowing that much about a person in the 10th or 11th or 12th century. It's the period I study to have such rich detail about a 19th century individual is, is just incredible to me. And, um, it's not a happy read all the time, but it's a, it's, it's, it's an important one. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and the books that you've written and edited? Oh, thank you. The, um, I have a website, uh, medievalimagination.com. Um, so it, M E D, uh, I E A V A L imagination.com. Uh, you can find me there. Um, you can also just Google search me at Scott Bruce Fordham and my faculty webpage will come up and there's links to, uh, there's, there's links to my website there as well. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking, speaking with Scott G. Bruce, editor of the new book, the Penguin Book of Dragons. The book is available now, so go buy a copy at your favorite independent bookstore. And Scott, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so very much for having me. Great. Thanks a lot. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.